Welcome to another episode of Getting on the Green, your real estate podcast with your host, Craig Merlin. Today, we have an incredible individual by the name of Tunde Ogunlana. Uh, he is a family wealth advisor at Axial Family Advisors. He was born and raised in Washington, D.C., and then he moved to Sydney, Australia. So this is a truly uh, global individual. Um, he's got a lot of information to share with us. He studied finance at Florida International University, so he does have a tie to South Florida. Um, he has multiple certifications, including his Series 7, 66, 24. He's a certified fund specialist, as well as a certified financial planner and more. God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about, so I'm very excited to uh, get started with him. Just a little background on the organizations he's involved with. He um, is a part of the National Association of Black Accountants, the City of Fort Lauderdale Community Service Board, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and many more. Um, I look forward to speaking with him, learning from him, and we all have a lot of information that we could gain from him. So, for further, welcome Tunde. Glad to have you. Thank you so much for being with us on uh, this pandemic. Um, great to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit more about yourself, other than uh, kind of what I mentioned. Well, you said a lot, man, so I'm not sure how much else there is to tell. Um, I'm married, three kids. Um, you know, I, I love Florida. I've been here 21 years. I moved here in 1998, uh, so I guess this will be my 22nd year. And, um, you know, just really enjoy uh, what I do. I guess uh, one thing to mention to the audience is um, we uh, started this firm in 2015. Before that, I was working, I don't even name the companies, but they're all great, you know, these big financial advisor and wealth management firms. I was at a Fortune 100 company and um, decided to take the leap of faith in 2015 and start my own firm. So that's that's pretty much it. All right. Very nice. So, so tell us, what exactly is a wealth advisor or wealth manager? Like, what, what, are, you, what are you doing for your clients? Uh, that's a very good question because I think, um, you know, that definition has shifted over, over even my career. I've been doing this now 19 years. And, um, you know, when I first got in the business, uh, some people would still use the term stockbroker, for example. Um, and then, you know, financial planning became popular, financial advisor, and then the kind of more sophisticated version of that became a wealth advisor or wealth manager. So I think all of them, uh, fall under a similar category, which is helping people grow and manage their wealth. And what does that mean? Well, to me, it means something different for different people. Um, wealth doesn't always have to be on paper, so it doesn't just have to mean. A lot of people think that that is just the stock market. So I'll give an example. If I tell someone what I do, a lot of times they'll say, "Oh, I don't like the stock market," or "I don't have you know millions of dollars to give you for the stock market." And um, Sometimes I just look at them and say, well, glad you said that because I never mentioned the stock market, you know, and um, one of my inspirations in life um, and, and, and is from a young age and, and watching in terms of an inspiration for business was actually my uncle. Um, he uh, was uh, born in 1933 during the Depression and one was one of those old school guys who never had a credit card. He never took on debt, but um, uh, passed away in 2013. Uh, worth you know, multiple millions of dollars. He owned a gas station, restaurants, uh, multiple uh, pieces of real estate throughout South Florida. And, um, and uh, 
he was one of the people that I watched, you know, viscerally could see that built a nice nest egg and wealth and my cousins, you know, are doing great. You know, he's able to transfer that wealth down to his family and his, he had seven grandkids um, who are all benefiting as well. And um, that was done with zero stocks. I remember when I got into this business, um, he pulled out a stock certificate from 1976. That was, I just remember it was 16,000 shares of something. I don't even remember the company name. And I looked at him and I said, Uncle Steve, what's that? And he says, it's a piece of shit. It was a penny stock I bought in 1976, <laughs> and I never—I lost all my money, and I never bought another stock again. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. Okay, so clearly it's possible to make and grow wealth so without my, the stock market. My long-winded uh, answer there is just, uh, you know, wealth is different to everyone. So to someone like my uncle, trying to convince him that the stock market was so great or, you know, Bitcoin or gold or whatever was just not in his wheelhouse. I mean, actually, I shouldn't say gold. He did... He did dabble in jewelries, uh, jewelry, and he had, um, you know, he would collect diamonds and other things. And he was one of those kind of guys, um, that that almost like a pawn shop type of guy. He he flipped things like that, and then he did real estate. But he created a nice nest egg for himself and his family. So that's to me, wealth management um, is is a broad term that just means growing assets in a way that is comfortable for the client. And, you know, I have right now clients that for years have only been in fixed accounts because they hate the market and they're okay getting 1%, 2% a year. Um, I have clients that want to be 100% in the market because they hate being fixed, but they understand the risks and they can stomach those risks. And um, part of the reason that we started the firm uh, and left the corporate side, and again, not to knock any firms because I think they all uh, do well by their clients in general, and I think um, you know the majority of advisors are honest and doing the right thing in those firms. But one thing I realized, I got very interested uh, in the last decade uh, in, into the area of art, um, you know, like canvases on the wall and kind of arts in that way, and learned that you know art is an asset class, and um, probably one of the few asset classes. And don't quote me as 100 percent accurate on this, but I think uh, in in the last probably 50, 70 years, art has not, from what I understand, has not had a negative return in your year. That it's, it's increased, it's, you know, in general, kind of there, if there was an art index, has increased every year. Um, and so what I realized, though, when I was working at, at, at kind of the more corporate traditional firm, you know, in the end, and I can respect this, um, you know, those firms are interested in, in growing their balance sheets themselves, and they usually only generate fees and, and revenue from managing paper assets like stocks and bonds and mutual funds or transactional um, activities such as, you know, something that generates a commission through a sale of an insurance product or a security or at certain firms if they do things like lending, mortgages or lines of credit, um, that type of activity as well. And what I realized was that, in, you know, if I wanted to truly do what I felt was, you know, I guess my definition of wealth management, which is advising people in the areas of uh, paper, but as well as hard assets, art, real estate, and other areas, then I needed to get out of that environment and to start my own environment where I could do that. And so that's what led us to starting the firm in 2015, was the idea that wealth management is, is broad and unique to each individual, and we wanted to be able to, to bring that uniqueness in the way that we ran our practice. 
Okay, so just for my own clarification, because I like things in very simple terms with my simple mind. Um, so the first thing you mentioned was like stockbroker, for instance. Are you the, and you said that you're not one of, you know, you're not necessarily their stockbroker or this or that, but are you replacing some an individual's accountant or stockbroker or something like that? Or are you working um, in congruency with those other professionals that the, that the family has? It's both. Um, and I could say either or. I mean, they can't replace somebody and work with them. Uh -huh. but, but we've done we've done both for clients. I mean, we've had clients where we are hired just as kind of that 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 third eye. They, you know, their cousin or their friend from college is at the Merrill Lynch or the Morgan Stanley. They don't want to take the, you know, they like that relationship. They don't want to take the assets from there, but they they'd like to have a, someone like us just making sure that you know everything is being properly done, that they aren't being overbilled. There's no, you know, hidden fees coming showing up here and there. That um, the asset allocation mirrors maybe things they have other places because they may have money at one firm, but then they have you know a large 401k somewhere else. Or they feel that if they own, you know, they might have investments in, in, in private equity or private um, uh, private areas, you know, like like individual businesses mm -hmm. or real estate. So they might say, you know, why is I don't want to have you know real estate investment trust inside of my Merrill Lynch account when I've got you know exposure to commercial real estate on my personal side directly. So those are things we've been hired to for. In, in one area and then other areas, some clients do say, you know what, you have an asset management platform that we're comfortable with and we like, why don't you just take over our accounts? And you know, we'll say, okay. So it, it can be either or. Okay. Um, so why would somebody, for instance, use a wealth manager? Like why, you know, what... Why wouldn't somebody be able to do it themselves or, you know, uh, what, what do you bring to the, to the picture? I think, uh, so that's a great question. Um, there's several ways that can be answered. One is, um, I've learned to call myself a financial therapist. Um, obviously that's not my official title, but, <laughs> but I say that in all seriousness because what I've learned is, you know, a lot of, a lot of, um, traditionally a, a lot of the folks in our industry approach everything from the left brain. You know, it's about the money, the numbers, the rates of return, all this. Um, what I've learned is that the right brain is just as important in in dealing with money because money is emotional. Um, I equate money to food. You know, a lot of us as human beings, you know, you get into psychology, um, a lot of the way we deal with things as adults comes back to our childhood and how we were raised and the culture and values that, that were instilled in us about the, the certain subjects. So just like eating... You know, a lot of habits of how we eat as adults come back from, you know, our childhood, right? The idea of comfort food. Uh, if you're stressed or uncomfortable, you start eating. Well, a lot of the similar ways that we deal with money come from the way our parents or the way things we saw in our household. Um, you know, I had a client that explained to me one time when we really got into some of these deep conversations that basically um, she's in her 50s now. So this has nothing to do with anything that happened in the last decade or two, but... Um, uh, at seven years old, she remembers coming home and there was an eviction or foreclosure notice on the front of their house. And they spent the next few months basically living at a you know, back of a U-Haul truck and in someone else's house. Now, this woman has become a very successful entrepreneur um, and has a business that she makes over a million dollars a year with. But the part of that conversation was me trying to find out what, what was really driving her in her financial decisions 
when we got down to it, it was, she told me too that I never want to have, from that age of seven years old, I never wanted to have that feeling of being, having a lack of control over something as important as to where I live. I never wanted to be my parents. So what I learned was, you know, imagine being a young child with basically PTSD, right? That she had a traumatic experience dealing with that in her life and watching, I'm sure she watched her parents being distraught and having that feeling like, I never want this to happen to me again. That created a human being that was an adult, that was a driven business person and who's now a multimillionaire. But when you get back to it, it's all about the fear of loss. So understanding that part of her psychology and her nature helps me to understand how to do things like recommend investments or manage her money. Because now when we talk, I can we, we can be very conservative in her portfolio with us because I'm explaining to her that she's taking a lot of risk as an entrepreneur. And to not and to, to, to prevent her from being in a position that she doesn't want to be in where she was when she was seven years old then we need to make sure that we're taking less risk in the portfolio on our side because, as we see now, as I know it's uh, May of 2020, we're right in the height of the COVID shutdowns. Turns out that her business is food-related. It's restaurant business, and she's in airports around the country. So, so you can imagine there's a lot of risk right now, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's what I'm saying is, but that, that comes down to, and that's why I make the joke that I, you know, some of it is therapy because you have to understand the human being you're dealing with in order to give proper advice. So that's that's one example of what, to me, a wealth manager should be doing, is knowing the client. Because, again, I'm one person. I can't do everything. But if I know that deep, intimate side of my client and the families, that, that, you know, the families I deal with, those relationships, I can then go and, and be a quarterback as well. So it's not that I got to be the best stock picker, but understanding that client, I can go find the right asset management team or work with a firm like yours if the person wanted commercial real estate and work with your experts. So that, that to me is where the role of someone like myself comes in is, you know, a wealth manager is a manager of wealth, not a stockbroker, not an insurance agent. To me, those are the specialists. Those are the people that someone like me needs to coordinate with on behalf of the family and it's my job to know who I'm dealing with as the client. So that's, I hope that that helps. With yeah, that. for sure. It definitely seems like uh, you, it's imperative in your field to have a much closer relationship with the client than, for instance, you know, a standard banker would, you know, I mean, a banker might only ever see their client when they're asking for money or vice versa. And with you, it seems like, you know, no matter what's going on, you need to know what's going on in the life of your client. Okay. That's exactly right. You, it, it, and I think that's what I meant, and, and I'm glad you, you articulated, sorry, articulated it like that. Um, that's what I meant when I said that the, the industry traditionally, because it's got to do with finance and, and kind of math and numbers, has been more of a left brain driven mm-hmm. uh, kind of way of dealing with clients, more transactional. And that's, you're right, it, it, there's a lot of emotion in right brain. And if you're doing this right, you're going to want to know a lot about that about your client. And what I found, too, is like anything else in life, the more we know about each other, um, the easier the relationship becomes. Mm-hmm. Because then, you know, understanding that really it's that emotion that drove that client example I gave you, you know, again, that helps me put a lot of things into context when we're, she and I are talking. And it also helps me understand how to allocate her from an investment standpoint. 
so that's you know that that again is is where um, uh, you know I think you 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 you've hit it on the head. Okay, so your official title is a family wealth advisor. Do you only work with families, or do businesses no, I use work with individuals as well? Um, but for instance, again, my my main question is basically: Are you doing this for businesses, or is it solely individuals and families dealing with their personal money? That um, is a great question. I have business owner clients. So do I deal with the businesses? Yes, um, by extension that the client that owns a bit, or you know, the person that owns a business is a client of ours. Um, I don't consider myself someone that works in the business market, though. And if you, and not to get in the weeds of kind of our industry jargon, but someone like that would be someone to me that provides things like four hundred one k's, group benefits, uh, you know, health insurance for the company. Mm-hmm. All that. I don't do that specifically now. Again. Do I have relationships with people that I trust and specialists and great firms that do that? Yes, because that uh, my role, I feel, is dealing with the family. So, for example, I have a lot of, you know, I love working with entrepreneurs because I am an entrepreneur. I own my own business. I know what it's like to you know, have to pay everyone before you get paid and all that stuff and, and worrying about the economy and how it's going to affect your business and all that. So, And I've actually got the headaches of dealing right now as a business owner with PPP and the EDA loans from the CARES Act, you know, so, so I love working with business owners. Um, but, um, so those things do come up where a business owner might call me and just say, you know, Tunde, who do you know that does health insurance? Cause you know, I'm tired of, you know, the quotes I'm getting from my guy or, mm-hmm. or, um, or, um, you know, I might find a business owner that we started with and they were a true entrepreneur with by themselves or with one or two you know, 1099 people because they, they weren't even working enough to be full-time employees. You know, and years later, this person is, you know, 15, 20 employees doing well. And now they're asking me in one of our reviews, hey, you know, the the, um, the employees are starting to ask about, you know, 401ks or this and that. So what I'll do is I'll go ahead and introduce, you know, I'll bring in that specialist or that relationship to then handle that, that specialty. Because again, I'm one person, I can't be an expert in everything. Mm-hmm. I feel I'm dangerous enough to, to kind of know what I'm looking at and know if, the client's getting a, a decent deal or not, but um, but I don't want to be a specialist in those areas. So really, it's it's um, it's really comes down to working with the individual and their family. That's partially why we named the firm Axial Family Advisors, um, and that's something personal to me because I take estate planning uh, very seriously in the practice. Um, you know, my I, I I had a few what I would consider for me traumatic experiences as a young advisor. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I started in the industry around 22 years old as an intern. And I think 23, 24, when I was licensed, um, I had the experience of having, you know, client meetings where I literally was sitting with someone and then got a call the next day that they had died. Um, and I just, you know, as a young kid, when you're invincible and I played college basketball, you know, I was an NCAA athlete. So I was dying was not really something that I was thinking about mm-hmm. at that young age and being in that kind of shape. So, um, by, and what I mean by traumatic is, you know, helping the widow, uh, widower um, for the coming months, dealing with things like probate, dealing with things like having a blended family and then getting sued by the, by the, by the children uh, of, the, of the deceased spouse that were children from a former marriage, because those kids were kind of uneducated about what was going on in the family and thought there was a lot more than there really was. And, and, and watching that, that surviving spouse really go through that emotional state 
and learning at that young age that, you know what, it's great if guys like me are helping people grow their wealth, but if we don't take care of making sure this stuff doesn't all get destroyed when they die, like, what do we really do for them and their family and their heirs? Because I realized, you know what, these people are suing this one and that one, that the loser in this is the young five or six-year-old grandkids, you know? Absolutely. Like the ones that really aren't going to have the relationship with the aunts and uncles. They're the ones that aren't going to be inheriting this money because, you know, the, the attorneys are all taking their contingency fees from all these <laughs> back and forth. So, um, and the probate court. So, so, um, so that's kind of where um, I learned at an early age. And also to me, it came down to um, certain personality and characteristic traits that I wanted to work with. Um, you know, as a younger guy in my late 20s, early 30s, um, you know, sometimes you take business because you need to, and there's nothing wrong with that, obviously, as long as you're doing everything above board. But what I mean by that is I would have people saying things to me that in my heart were uncomfortable, but, you know, I still did the business. And by mm -hmm. that, I mean, you know, I would meet with somebody at a job site because maybe I was at a company that was doing, you know, some sort of um, seminar or something. And I would have someone that seemed really nice, hey, you know, I'd love to work with you, but, you know, I don't have to have my, my wife involved, do I? Or I don't have to have my husband involved. And again, the same thing, I thought, you know, as I matured and, and could say no to more things as I got older and, 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 and revenue got better, I would, I, would, I would often say no and start to say no to people like that because, you know, if you're not even comfortable including your spouse on important financial things, then I don't know if I want to work with you because <laughs> what kind of person are you? A quick red flag what for you. relationships do you have? Mm -hmm. And so... That, and, and then I would have sometimes, too, you know, the kind of macho attitude from some guys. Um, I never got this from females, so I'll definitely pin this on the men uh, with the macho attitudes when I would try to talk about estate planning. And they would all, oh, you know, why should I leave my family anything? No one ever helped me and this and that. And again, the same thing, like, well, if you can't even think about your own kids and your spouse in that way, then how are you going to think about me if we go through tough times? You know, like, so I really, in starting the firm, was like, you know what? I want to make a point that we're here to work with families. Um, you know, we, it doesn't mean that someone that's single with no kids can't be our client. Mm -hmm. we do single people that don't have children as clients. But it's just the overarching idea that we want to create a family environment from our practice standpoint. And that's why we strive to keep our, our, our list of families that we work with, if I can say it that way, under 100 because to me, service is very important. And that was, and me in the old corporate days, you know, my client book, which I don't even, some of them I'll call customers, because client to me is someone that you have a kind of an engaging relationship, relationship with. with. Yep. Um, I had 500 names in my client or customer roster. And I felt like both me and them kind of didn't like that and were stressed out because. I promise everyone that I'm going to do a certain level of hand-holding and, and reviews annually and all that. Well, if I got 500 human beings I have to deal with with only 600, sorry, 365 days in a year, I can't deal with everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, again, if I'm saying committing to something and I'm not honoring it, obviously the client's not going to be happy. So part of my journey in starting my own firm is I, I always wanted to have a small client base so that we can really drive service. So that's... That's, that's fairly honorable and uh, definitely an interesting business strategy, limiting the amount of clients so you can basically give them a higher level of service. That's Yeah, when I had an executive coach that told me that. He said, Tunde, it's better to be one inch wide and 10 miles deep in our industry with a client relationship than 
10 miles wide and one inch deep mm-hmm. in a sense. And so I kind of took that to heart, I guess. All right, so let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, as we both mentioned briefly before, we are in the COVID pandemic. It seems like it's somewhat winding down a little bit now. The government is saying how they're going to uh, start opening up. I think Florida was supposed to open up um, starting maybe even today or next Monday, but not uh, Miami, Dade, Broward, or Palm Beach yet. Um, so what are you expecting as an advisor? Um, obviously, you don't have a crystal ball. You don't have you know any magical powers, but um, you are definitely educated in... Um, you know, these topics, what are you expecting for the market in the next uh, quarter and let's say beyond there? Um, and let's let's give a, a broad sense of the market, not any specifics, meaning like not the Dow or housing market or anything. Let's just say the market as a whole. What are you what are you okay. expecting? Um, so my favorite game is roulette. And you're asking me what number that ball is going to fall. You just spin the wheel. Well, or just take take your best bet if you want to bet on black or red. You yeah, know, you can kind of wean it down a little bit. Got, you know, I got a 50-50 shot of losing on black or red, so that's even tough. But um, no, on a serious note, obviously, we all know that trying to predict the stock market's a fool's errand. Mm-hmm. And I've been called a fool before, so I'll definitely answer your question. Love it. Um, <laughs> I, I obviously I don't know, but I I tend that my gut tells me that it's going to be a, um, a a long ride to get back to the twenty nine thousand. I know you said don't be specific on Dow <laughs> Jones, but that's okay. the first thing that came up to me. You know, whatever the S and P was and the Nasdaq, I think it was around nine thousand a little over it, and the Dow was at twenty nine thousand. So I think to get if that was let's call it full valuation, let's say in February sixteenth, which I think was the all time high. Um, then here we are three months later, um, with, I mean, from the numbers we're seeing, right, 20% unemployment, and that's people that are counted, and we're, you know, from what I understand, a lot of people, you know, a lot of the state systems for unemployment are down, and mm-hmm. so the number could be higher, and um, on top of that, what's not as talked about widely is the uh, salary cuts that a lot of corporations have uh, laid down to their employees, so you figure we've got north of 20% of straight unemployment, we might have another 25 to 50% of employed people that just have a slowdown in their income. So I think one thing that um, my concern is for this moment is that this recession may be different than any we've seen in our lifetime because this isn't a normal business cycle recession, this is a pandemic. And so this involves health. Um, I'm someone who has out of my three kids, all three have an issue. Uh, one has asthma, which I know is just, you know, is at a higher risk for this virus. Another has a peanut allergy, which I don't think is, has anything to do with being risk of this virus, but that's something. And then the third actually has type 1 diabetes, which is, you know, diabetics are at risk. So, you know, I realize that, yeah, I'm healthy as a horse, but I'm going to be very careful. Um, and until there's a vaccine that works, that can go into my children. Um, I am probably not going to go into any restaurants, movie theaters, crowded spaces, all that kind of stuff for fear of bringing something home and doing harm to people I love. Mm-hmm. So this isn't all about me. The point is, is that I'm going to assume there's probably 50 million Americans that have maybe somebody in their house that were their grandparent or someone they care about that they're not going to want to hurt. And then there's probably another 50 to 100 million Americans that themselves have some issue. 
that have, um, you know, asthma or type 2 diabetes or something that one can say is, um, can make themselves much more vulnerable to death or severe illness from the COVID-19 virus. Um, and then let's not talk about the percent of Americans that are over age 60 that might just have these type of feelings. So my concern is that no matter what the timeline is to quote unquote reopen the economy or not, that the behavior of the consumer um, won't be the same as it might have been under a business cycle recession. Um, the second uh, is the unemployment figures. You know, we are here today on um, Thursday, May 7th. We had another unemployment, um, uh, uh, or, sorry, unemployment claims numbers uh, come out this morning. So now we're at an official tally of 33 million uh, job losses, actually. And those are the people that are counted. Um, there's estimates there's potentially over 40 million people actually unemployed over the last 70 weeks because of the, the, the information that we know to be out there that um, um, a lot of states' unemployment systems have been jammed up because of the amount of volume uh, and, and, and people that have been, been trying to access them. So realistically now we're at a, an unemployment level that is uh, that hasn't been this high in the United States since the Great Depression, since the 1930s. So. This is really unprecedented. I mean, um, and, and in terms of just this whole thing, you know, global pandemic, the slowdown in the economy, which then forced um, the the unprecedented job losses in such a in such a quick period of time. And one of the things I've shared with clients, as I mentioned, that that in the prior part when we when we talked about kind of the market rebounding in, in recent weeks, my concern is that if you look at two thousand eight, um, the the unemployment rate went from what we call full employment at the time, which was around 4% unemployment and 96% then of employment, which was considered anything under 5%, you know, the, the term in economics is full employment. Um, and so and so we went from full employment to 10% unemployment over a, about a year period in 2008. And so what happened over that time is, you know, the system was able to absorb the bad news ongoing. And so the market also reflected that and, was, was kind of seesawing and going negative for the year. And then in September of 2008, when Lehman Brothers collapsed, I mean, that really sent the market into a tizzy and what caused the, the, the final leg down for the year and into March of 2009. What we have here, though, and, and let me just finish that part off then, is um, when I say that the system had time to absorb the, the bad news and kind of the shocks, means that over that year, as the layoffs were happening, um, what was also happening were that unfortunately the people laid off that, that didn't have, have savings, which unfortunately is most of our country, uh, weren't able to keep up with their financial obligations, primarily mortgages, car notes, credit cards. So what happened is you started having a wave of defaults, which the system could understand, and it caused the market to go lower and kind of, you know, the normal, what I think all of us that are in this business of finance economics would consider a normal business cycle recession, which is basically the nerdy way of saying a recession, <laughs> but, but kind of caused by a normal business cycle events of contractions and expansions. Um, you know, the fact that there hasn't been anything resembling a global, global pandemic since um, 1918 with the Spanish flu means that unless you're well over 102 years old, which I don't think there's too many people out there that can claim that, um, that you know, you you have no idea what this is like. And even if there was somebody that was 150 years old, that was an adult back then, that could tell us exactly what it was like. 
we understand that the world wasn't as financially connected as it is today. So and much different technologies, right? Correct. And also think about it, 8 billion people. I mean, I think we were maybe still under 2 billion back in 1918. I mean, so there's so many factors now that, um, that just, again, unprecedented in human history that this happens in this way. So, um, so, so, because remember, you know, 500, 1,000, whatever years ago in human history, things like oceans and mountain ranges kept human beings apart enough that you just, you actually couldn't get a global pandemic. I mean, the closest thing we had probably in at least recorded history was, you know, the conquistadors bringing smallpox and influenza and all that to, you know, the American continent and wiping out 90% of, 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 of the Native Americans that lived on the South American continent. Um, that might have been the first time ever that we saw that kind of transmission, at least in recorded history. So I find myself getting on a history lesson here. So let's get back to finance. Um, my, my, my point in the comment, though, about, about the, the one year it took to go from full employment to that level of 10% unemployment is what I kind of remind people that. So think about it. It took a year for that to happen, and then we saw what that did to the economy to be at 10% unemployment. So fast forward to today, we're at a, obviously a different crisis. Not all crises are the same, but my concern with this one is that we have gone from full employment, which was actually this time at around three and a half percent, so the, the, the highest employment rate since I think data started being recorded in the early 60s, um, to now somewhere estimated between 15 and 20 percent. And if you throw in the estimated numbers of people that probably aren't being counted, you're around 20 percent plus, like low 20s. That has happened in seven weeks. So the, the point I'm making is the data about defaults, people that aren't paying their rent now, all that hasn't even begun to come out. Um, that'll all start coming out over the next few weeks to months because, again, the Federal Reserve collects data, the banks have data, all that, but they report them on a periodic basis. Uh, so that's my one concern, well, not one, one, several, but one of my main concerns, I would say, that as that, as that information begins to come out and the reality of, of the hole that's been blown in our economy by all this unprecedented events becomes real, that the markets may begin to react negatively. And, and kind of take that reality because I think what's happening like literally right now over this period of time is that the markets are reacting to the stimulus. You know, we've had around $3 trillion of stimulus printed. Um, but my concern again is number one, we already have, you know, seen the stories that not all the stimulus is getting where it needs to be. Number two, um, that it's not coming fast enough. And again, I say this without blame, because um, this is just an emergency situation. So obviously, you know, I don't expect trillions of dollars to move through a massive country like ours with 300 million people plus uh, in two or three days. So we understand that the infrastructure, just like the hospital infrastructures and the big cities where the epicenters are like New York, weren't ready for an extra million people, you know, or however many were jamming, you know, and, and taking up the beds. Our financial system, and our state unemployment systems and all these systems that are used to a certain capacity just are overwhelmed. So my concern is that just those facts, again, without judgment on that, um, will lead to inefficiencies, which will mean that money won't get to where it's intended to go. The second fact is that small businesses do employ around 
of the workforce in the United States as per the SBA, the Small Business Administration, because they are government's own numbers. Um, prior to this crisis, they enjoyed about a $100 billion a week payroll. So my concern is that out of a $3 trillion stimulus, even with the second round of stimulus targeted towards small business, we've got about you know under $500 billion that's allocated to that sector. So when you combine, you know, only 500 billion going to a sector that has a weekly payroll of 100 billion, and you have then the jam ups in the system of these PPP and EDA loans and all that, and you have the fact that they support, you know, basically represent 53% of the workforce in the United States, and we got all these layoffs, I just feel like if, if this was a recipe and I was cooking up a, a, a stew and I was throwing all this stuff into the pot, I don't think it would be the best tasting stew. <laughs> so, so that's that's really my concern with all this. Um, I think that this, you know, again, like the quantitative easing of two thousand eight. You know, I tend to give you know our leaders in terms of um, you know the Treasury Secretary, the Fed specifically, those kind of agencies and, and departments um, a little bit of, of leeway and, and, and sympathy because you know. No one wants, you know, no one could expect this and, and, and know how to deal with this. This is a fly, a fly by the secret pants. Um, what happened in 08 was the only precedent we had to that was the Great Depression. And so we knew what happened when the Federal Reserve did what they did in 1929 through 1932, which was they restricted the money flow. And that then caused a lack of liquidity, which caused the Great Depression. People keep saying it's the crash of 1929. That's not what caused the Depression. It was what came after that and the way that the Federal Reserve handled, you know, the whole liquidity system in this country. So the fact that they did the opposite thing in 08 and it, and it kind of worked in a sense, it, it, it drove rates to zero, forced everyone that wanted to be scared of being cash to have to go put their money in other assets in order to make money back to real estate, dividend paying stocks and all that. The same, the same um, techniques are being tried again. Will they work the exact same way? Probably not. Not because I'm a genius and I know that. Just because every situation is different and most leaders, mm -hmm. if you look at human behavior, they, you know, we tend to be the generals that fight the last war. So they're doing everything that they think worked last time to something that is happening this time, which is different. We're, we're, we're facing a recession that may get a lot worse than that based on a global health pandemic where 12 years ago we were facing a great recession caused by overextension of credit in the real estate market. So in the end of the day, um, I don't like the printing of the money because, you know, again, I'm going to sound like one of these guys that was in a Tea Party march, you know, 10 years ago, but it's true, right? We're mortgaging our children's future, and that is a fact. Um, but I don't know if the alternative to the stimulus would have been any um, – friendly to us because we may have faced just a, a, literally a great depression. So um, how this plays out from here is uncertain, but my concern is that, um, you know, what a lot of people were concerned about last time, meaning 12 years ago, that over printing all this money, we're going to see inflation. That didn't happen. You know, I would give an example. That is an example of that's one of my concerns this time. We may see some inflation in the next four or five years when all this printing is done. So that doesn't mean that the world ends. What it means is we just need to be smart and know how to get ahead of that and where to put our capital so that it doesn't fall behind when, you know, those those type of events uh, come to play. So, you know, that's why it's none of this is about having a crystal ball. It's just understanding the moment. 
um, looking the facts in the face. And, you know, I've been telling clients and friends of mine that are trying to still have rose colored glasses or deny facts. I said, look, this, this is like, imagine, you know, there was an asteroid that, that hit the earth at some point and it wiped out the dinosaurs. I mean, I don't know how smart or dumb dinosaurs were, but if they were smart as us, I'm sure a lot of them would have been trying to deny that it happened. You know, oh, that's just a volcano making all that smoke out there. You know, that's not really something that's going to bother us. And so I say, you know, if an asteroid hit the earth today, we wouldn't have welcomed it. We wouldn't have liked it. Um, it would disrupt global activity, I'm pretty sure. Um, but we would know we'd have to deal with it. Uh, and the difference is because that would be a kinetic strike and put dust in the air and you know all that, we'd probably accept it a little bit easier because it's visual. And we could see it. We wouldn't have to argue about is it real or not or where it started or is it a hoax and all that. And I think that's that's the problem, I think, with this thing being a virus and unseen is that, you know, you look out your window and everything looks normal. And, you know, you turn on one news station and it's not that bad and you turn on somebody else and it's the worst thing in the world. So I think... That's part of the confusion with this whole thing is that it's just murky for a lot of people and then it causes them to see the economic and financial picture as a little bit murky too. It's quite the uh, interesting um, kind of analogy and link together. Uh, that, that was, wow. Um, so that kind of leads me... See, I, I like history a little bit. Yeah, well, <laughs> hey, that, that painted a, a, a very clear picture for... <laughs> You know, the most technical expert down to, you know, the absolute novice. So that that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, what I'm yeah, looking for, to be honest. To, uh, what was his name? Pizarro, that's that's above my uh, knowledge base, so I, I can't comment on that. Um, but so so you kind of I don't know. I don't want to necessarily classify your take as a somewhat grim take um, because you didn't say it's going to be horrible or anything like that. Yeah. But. Obviously, we're not in a fantastic situation, but is there anything that right now you would tell your clients, I love this. I love going in. I mean, you mentioned art earlier, for instance. Um, you know, is it real estate? Is it bonds? Is it? Is there anything out there that I wouldn't say you'd, you'd bet your life on, but you have decent confidence that if somebody parks their money in there, they should do well. You don't have to give specifics because obviously that's what you get paid off of. But yeah. you know, well, that's uh, also I got to be careful with uh, you know, my securities license from the legal compliance. Okay, so understood. I'm technically supposed to give advice on the air. So then, uh, so then, don't. No, no, I can, I can, I can, I can answer the question without getting myself in trouble. Okay, put that way, um, and, and, and go back to my analogy jokes on roulette. Um, you know, it's, you're asking me to hit like the double zero. You know, and, and, and of course <laughs> I can't do that, but. Uh, but no, I, I, I so it's a it's a great question about the art because I just had a call. It's funny, like three hours ago, I was on the phone with my art advisor, um, someone we have on our team. If you look on our website, um, her name's Carla Ferguson. What what website is that? Um, it's our firm website, which is Axial A X I A L Family Advisors dot com. Axial Family Advisors dot com. Okay, thank you. Um, so no, I appreciate the plug there. Um, so she's on the site. Her name's Carla Ferguson. She's great. She owns a gallery um, down in Miami, um, you know, in the, in the hot area of the art district there. And we were talking about actually that she started to see it the um, lower end of the art market. So I'm, you know, by lower end, I mean you know, not someone worth you know five hundred million dollars with you know, ten Picassos and Van Goghs on their walls, but just you know, a, a, a good collector. There might be a millionaire, 
and they have, you know, the collection of maybe a million, a couple million to hundreds of thousands, and they're getting scared, and she's saying they're starting to dump, and they're starting to put their stuff on the market and, and, and looking for liquidations. Maybe the plug holes, maybe they own real estate and they're not getting rent, you know, this type of stuff. So I was actually surprised to hear that because, again, those are the other signs to me that make me a little nervous about where the economy is going because, you know, someone with a million or $2 million art collection, if they're kind of dumping out of fear, that's telling you a lot. That means, you know, their cash, their other assets aren't doing that well if they're really trying to sell an illiquid asset like art. So the good news about that is I said, Carla, well, then I need you to come on my show and I need to interview you so you can educate our clients and our friends about how they can take advantage of this. So I think to your point, I mean, I, I'm not going to sit there and say that the average person should start speculating in the art market. I think that's a very uh, niche area, just like, you know, collectibles like mm -hmm. coins or watches or stamps or anything. I mean, art is a very niche area. And of course, someone can learn. And, and, I, and, I, and I always welcome people to be aggressive and, and proactive and learn. But I wouldn't recommend just diving into that if you're a novice. Uh, what I would recommend is, um, without trying to be you know too specific, like I said, is mm -hmm. not giving individual stock picks or anything. Just be strategic. I think the one thing that I found with the psychology of a lot of my clients has been not as much now today, but when the sell-off started, it's like every, they all thought it was going to be like that sell-off in the fourth quarter of 2018. Oh, we got to get it. And they were actually, I didn't mind it because they were sending more cash into their accounts. So, you know, it was great. But the thing is, is what I was telling him, we're going to be patient. Just because you send me a bunch of cash doesn't mean that I'm going to just put it to work tomorrow. We're going to be strategic. And what I've been telling clients is, you know, because I have a watch list I send to my clients every couple of weeks. And we put the new prices that we're going to put, you know, buy limit orders on. And, you know, hypothetically, without naming the company, you know, if, if XYZ company is trading right now at $95, and it's in a certain industry because I think right now you got to be very industry specific. Clearly, you know, Marriott Hotels or Carnival Cruise Lines or American Airlines have a lot greater risk right now with what's going on with this pandemic than maybe an Amazon, which, you know, I've seen three trucks show up at my house with a smiley face behind <laughs> So, you know, in one day here. So, so the thing is, is that, is that, you know, that's kind of what I'm telling my clients is, you know, like every pendulum, or sorry, like every period of time is like that pendulum swinging. You have the pendulum that swings from when the index is time to index and this the wind is going at the back of the market and you just throw your money in the NASDAQ or something and you do great and you'll beat you know 90% of the fund managers. Just pretty much the last decade. You know, one could say that was basically 2010 to 2020. Um, but the prior decade, 2000 to 2010, was a stock pickers market. And if you could say maybe 1980 to probably 1992, 93 was a stock picker's market. You know, there's famous money managers like Peter Lynch that, that like smashed the S&P 500. But if you look from maybe the early, like 93 to maybe 2000, you could have probably bought the NASDAQ and been fine because that's the tech boom. So I think where the pendulum is swimming, swinging back into that kind of stock picker's market, the real, you know, Wall Street type of guys, the Warren Buffett types, the ones that understand business long-term, um, who, who really get in the weeds of companies, I think they'll be rewarded. Um, and, you know, some of it will be lucky and some of it will be guesses and, you know, they'll make the right and wrong guesses, but there will be some companies that come out of this and do phenomenal. Um, it's interesting, again, not to recommend this company at all, but just because it was today um, or yesterday, Peloton came out with their earnings. 
And again, I'm not recommending that stock, but I'm, I'm bringing it up as an example of a company that was chugging along doing normal, but this pandemic hits, and what's the one thing that gets affected the most? I shouldn't say the most, but one of the major areas that got affected was gyms. And so it makes sense to me that Peloton would do well because, number one, if I want to work out, I want to work out. So now just like I'm running my business from my home doing Zoom meetings with clients, why can't I work out from home? Then Peloton to me has an innovative idea of, kind of using the internet and creating this kind of fraternal environment of workouts and people with other people and all that. And then the third thing is it's not cheap. So if I'm going to make an investment of several thousand dollars for this whole system and equipment and all that to be in my house, probably when this is over, I'm not going to change my behavior. I'm going to be hooked on this. And I'm like, my concern for anyone that owns a gym is that gyms are going to suffer after this with the amount of people that are getting used to working out at home. I mean, my wife and I work out every day in our garage. Same thing. I don't have a Peloton, but I got the, I bought the flooring from Amazon, you know, the gym flooring, the rubber mats, mm-hmm. and I got dumbbells and, you know, I'm just thinking that, that I have an LA fitness a mile and a half from my house. But if you add the amount of time to drive there, fight a couple of traffic lights, get my gym bag out, get chains, all that, you know, that's an hour out of my day just traveling back and forth to the gym. So, you know, I think a lot of people are going to have those realizations. And so a company like a Peloton, again, not recommending them necessarily, but just as an example, um, is a company or the type of industry, maybe a better way to put it, that should do well coming out of this because of the behavioral change we might see from human beings over this process. And I think the longer this takes, right, I mean, if, if we have a vaccine magically in a month or two, maybe that's another story. But I think, you know, at least today, in May 7th of 2020, the consensus is the earliest we'll see a vaccine might be January. And I'm not sure if that means a vaccine that just works or does that, you know, the timeline of having enough of that vaccine that 300 million Americans can have it in their system. So, um, so I think the longer this goes and the more that our behavior changes, companies like that will probably benefit where maybe, I don't know about what gyms are publicly traded, but if there's a publicly traded gym or a real estate investment trust, let's say, that deals with strip malls that have gyms in it, those type of investments may end up suffering at least for the next few years. So to get back to um, kind of the, 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 the question is, my conversation with clients has been, this is going to be a long slog. And let's say you have 100% of cash right now, of some, of some amount, that um, we may not fill the whole equity position in your portfolio for the next six to 18 months. And it's like, you know, because if we want to take a five position, like so I, I give an example sometimes to clients that, so for every million dollars, a 5% position is 50,000. If you have a million bucks and you want to have a 5% position in a stock, that's a $50,000 position, but in this environment, we're not going to go put 50 grand on a stock all in one shot. Mm-hmm. We're going to dollar cost average it. Mm-hmm. At a starter position, at least. Correct. So five to 10 buys, depending on the stock, depending on the client's risk tolerance, you know, that's all where you get in the individual relationship. But what does that mean? That just means that either I'm going to take 10 times over the next year, year and a half, to take $5,000 bites at a particular company, or I'll take the same amount of time, but do five, $10,000 bites, whatever it is, um, and whatever, you know, however we feel, like I mentioned about, about the risk and all that. But the idea is, and, and what, I, what I explain to clients is, let's take a company like a JP Morgan, for example. 
And again, not to recommend it, but just as a historical example. The market bottomed in the last recession on March of 2009. You know, and my, my, my joke to clients and prospects, actually, you know, when I'm dealing with someone that's thinking about working with us, um, is no one in my position is good enough to predict the market. Because if they were, they wouldn't be working. So, so, so what we need to do is just be strategic in how we allocate our dollars long-term. And the example of JP Morgan is, I don't know, I don't remember what JP Morgan bottomed out yet at, but had you just taken that approach and strategically bought JP Morgan between 2008 and 2010, your cost basis may be somewhere between 20, 25 bucks. And before this started in January of 2020, 10 years later, they were at $140. And so what I'm saying that my example is, you know, none of us can time this, but when the market gives you entry points to good quality companies like it's done this last couple months, then you just want to have a strategy on, on slowly entering and taking long-term positions in good quality companies. And I would say the same thing to finish off with real estate. Maybe not, you can't dollar cost average into real estate, but maybe being patient for those people that want to look at real estate as an asset class and just, and just understanding that if we have 30 million people unemployed, we're, we, we don't know when this is going to end. It's not, it's not a fool, foolish to assume that real estate prices could fall from where they are today. And so kind of same thing. So those are, to finish it off, those would be the areas that I would, I, or the way I would think of looking into the next six or 12 months. Cash, be patient strategically, and then just start buying when it makes sense. Well, thank you very much, Day. That's unfortunately all the time we have. Uh, I think all of our listeners today really learned a lot from you. You had a lot of information, and the way you were able to associate it uh, to past events and other situations like that really makes um, it possible for people to really understand um, the message that you're trying to get across. And I think we all benefited, or I know we all benefited from all this information. So to all of our listeners, make sure you hit the like button, follow the podcast, and share it with all your friends, family, and colleague. And until next time, we will see you on the green.